0: Welcome to The Gardens Podcast. This message entitled, Perversions of Love 2, was given by Bill Dogtrum
2: and is the second in our series, The Seven Deadly Sins. Um, I'm going to ask you to look at a couple of different passages this morning, Uh, and if you don't have Bibles and want them, uh, there's a few on the side. Maybe I could get some folks to help me out. Anybody want a Bible that doesn't have one? Just to follow along. Uh, We've got some folks here in the middle, Uh, if you can help me out with that. Got uh, r- Yeah, once more. That's great. Thank you. We're going to start off in a, a fairly straightforward um, passage this morning uh, and, and sit with uh, anybody else? Cool. If, uh, if you want to start to get into the habit, if you have one at home, bring it along and get your pen and paper out and underline stuff and make notes in the margin. Um, the pages are not sacred. The words in them... Are really important, and some of them uh, we need to underline. I've found myself though with some of these passages underlining so much that I got the whole page underlined. That's a, a problem, you know. It's like when you study for an exam. Anybody doing midterms or final papers and stuff like that, and you're, you're highlighting everything that's important, and soon you realize, "Holy cow! I've highlighted the whole book. I don't know what's important. Everything." Ah, give me a study guide. Um, this is a study guide. This morning, this helps us to know what God thinks is important. Uh, and what he's done about it. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 are critical passages, critical understandings for how, uh, building on what Darren talked about last week from Genesis 3, we tend to self-sabotage, tend to blow ourselves up. It says very simply this, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but even so we are now being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is available to us in Christ Jesus. Both of those things need to be held up high. Everybody has sinned. Why? Because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's who we are. And we chose that passage in Genesis chapter 3, remember? that Darren was talking about last week, because we chose not to be what God said we were, his image. Instead, we wanted to trade what we were in for something that we could never be, the possessors with integrity of the knowledge of good and evil. We did not have the capacity for that knowledge, and it killed us. It damaged and destroyed us. It damaged and destroyed our relationships. It damaged with with God, with ourselves and, and uh, with each other, right? G.K. Chesterton said that sin is the only Christian doctrine that is self-verifiable. You just got to pay attention and you recognize something's gone sideways with the world, and Moses tells us what it is. It's that we chose to be what God said we weren't and chose not to be what God said we were, right? The result, we're sinners who sin. Fallen short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? You. You're his way of self-revelation. The word glory in the Old Testament and the New has to do with God's way of revealing himself in the world, right? We've talked about this before uh, in, in a couple of other contexts. So when we talk about the glory of God that we have fallen short of, we have fallen short of being what he intended us to be. We have fallen short of the standard that he established for what it takes to be his image. We have fallen short of what um, he intended the world to be shaped like. But now, fortunately, God has got a plan in place, the mission of God, the so-called Missio Dei, to restore the world to itself, to restore us to our rightful place as his image. And through Christ, through Jesus, through the death of Christ on the cross, that we will be uh, celebrating and entering into, commemorating here in a few few weeks uh, with the Easter weekend. I love Easter Sunday morning uh, that Annie was talking about. I just love the celebration of new life in Christ. But can I suggest to you that if we don't pay enough attention to Good Friday, Easter Sunday is meaningless. If we don't pay enough attention to what it costs God to get to Easter Sunday. We miss the importance of Easter Sunday. And so we move into Monday without any significant meaning. There is no shadow of an empty cross and an empty tomb. All we have is Easter bunnies and eggs, right? Instead of the new life that, that Jesus came to provide for us. He didn't rise from the dead as a trick He rose from the dead as a model of what happens in us when we connect our sins to him on the cross and join our lives to his in resurrection life. It's pretty cool. Uh, And so before we get there, though, we need to pay attention to what leads up to that. So that's what we're doing here. In 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 the church for the last centuries, few centuries, uh, this 40-day period uh, prior to Easter called Lent invites people to self-examination, to peel back some of the self-protective layers, to to unpack. Some of you have chosen to set aside some uh, uh, things that you've maybe been hiding in or using to self-medicate uh, coffee or chocolate or, or food of one kind or another and enter into a long fast, uh, preparing. And the purpose of that is not so that you get down on yourself but so that you see yourself. How many of you know it's very possible to deceive yourself? If you don't know that, you should have raised your hands because you are. <laughs> All right? We're very good at it. We we the the Jeremiah tells us that the heart is 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 wicked. It is deceitful. It will play tricks on you. It will lie to you. And in a variety of ways you will find a way to do what you want to do. Right? And so what we're trying to do in this series here of the next three weeks is just say, here's a mirror. Will you, by the grace of God, have courage partnering with the Holy Spirit to see what's actually there and bring that whole sad and sorry self to Jesus? Will you do that? So we're going to talk about what sin fundamentally is. You know, last week, Darren defined it in a couple of weeks uh, as missing the mark. It's, a, it's an archer's term. And if a person in, in, in aiming for a target veered off course, he was said to have missed the mark. And that's where the word sin comes from. Uh, it's that, that is the derivation. It means to wander off the path. It means to go a, a different direction. Um, so this it results in us falling short of what God intended us to be, um, His revelation, His image, um, and 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 what makes sin so destructive to us is that it feels like self-expression, right? It feels like I'm free, and what it results in is self-sabotage, and self-destruction. The 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 we 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 sin, we violate the holy way that God has intended us to live, and so lose ourselves uh, in the dark. Now, we are built, like we've talked about, to live as the image of God. John tells us as one of the aspects of God's character that God is love. So we are intended as God's image to live in love, right? It is to be the, the, the connective tissue of our relationships it is to be the, the foundation of our self-understanding. It's to be the dialogue that we share with the Father. So we ought not be too surprised when we talk about sin to recognize that it is fundamentally a distortion of love. It is a way that love gets tweaked. It's a way that it goes sideways. It's a way that it turns toxic. And and um, he talked about uh, Pope Gregory the, uh, in about 500 or so uh, uh, A.D., the last John Calvin called Gregory the last great pope. He was a fabulous spiritual director, and he noticed in his soul care, in his pastoral care of people, that, that sin tended to cluster around seven major categories. Uh, he was a student of the Desert Fathers, and their examination, their ruthless examination of themselves and, and those that they cared for, revealed a number of different categories, and Gregory compiled these into seven that you have now maybe uh, become familiar with as the seven deadly sins. Um, They are not sins, they're temptations primarily. These are the ways that we blow ourselves up, and so they are distortions of love. Today we'll talk about perversions of love, how love gets perverted. Next week we'll talk about uh, what happens when love is insufficient, and there's not enough of it. And then the final week, uh, we'll talk about uh, what happens when it gets misdirected, when love is focused in in, in, in inappropriate ways, all right? So today, uh, we'll talk about the creation of space that Lent is to look in the mirror and say, Spirit of the living God, search my heart, Psalm 139, Psalm 19, see if there be any wicked way in me, all right? Anybody in for the journey? Now, the goal is not that at the end of the thing we're saying, oh, there's wicked ways in me. We, we know that without starting, right? The goal is that having identified what those things are, we invite Jesus into them. We invite him to make those things part of what happened on Good Friday. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? So walking out of here, we don't want to say, I'm prideful or I'm envious or I'm angry, oh, well. We want to say, I've identified that there are ways that I'm prideful. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a prideful person. Inviting him to bubble those things up, connect them with the sins of the world on the cross, and leave them there. That's the goal this morning. All right. So it's not about shame, it's not about condemnation, but it is about invitation. So the first way that love gets perverted... Centers around what, what uh, theologians have called kind of the motherload, the fountainhead of all sin, which is pride. You see it played out large in uh, Romans. Uh, ch- uh, excuse me, in Genesis chapter three that Darren talked about last week. But here's Paul's take on it in Romans chapter twelve, verse three. Don't think of yourself more highly than um, uh, you see it. I'm starting on the second line there. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given to you. Look at it again. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. That's one element. How many recognize that as being pride? Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. But notice this second qualification is really critical as well. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Notice what he's after. Pride is not just not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. The pushback to pride is humility, which is thinking of yourself accurately. So pride works two ways. This is the most popular way, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But do you notice the other way pride works? Thinking of ourselves more lowly than we ought to. You see how that works? That's also pride. That's also disagreeing with God about what is fundamentally true. You see how it works? Pride says, I know better than God about the nature of reality. And usually it results as me thinking more highly of myself than I ought to. But occasionally, and I'm going to suggest increasingly in the culture that we live in, it results in people thinking more lowly of themselves than they ought to. And Paul says in the middle, consider yourselves, think of yourselves with sober judgment, with accurate self-assessment. That's pride. That's humility. Humility is uh, accurate self-concept combined with positive self-regard. Accurate self-concept, positive self-regard. That's humility. Seeing who I fully am, positive and negative, and embracing that as the gift of God to me, that I now offer back up to him. Do you see how that works? So, pride is, is deadly in that it arises out of, and here's where the perversion gets going on with love. Uh, pride arises out of too much love for self combined with too little love for God. So that we don't have an accurate view of ourselves. Typically, the reason we don't have an accurate view of ourselves is because we don't have an accurate view of God. Typically, the reason we either love ourselves too much or too little is because we don't love God enough either. You see how they're connected? And please notice all of these things, all of sin has social relational implications. There is no such thing as a solo sin, it always affects relationships. How many of you have been damaged in relationships? By somebody's quote unquote solo sin. Right? Because they're disconnected from God or they're disconnected from themselves, what happens? It comes out sideways and whacks you in the back of the head. Doesn't that happen? And so uh, uh, Paul here is saying, and, and he goes on, this is in the passage, we'll look at the next one here in just a second. But in that passage in Romans chapter 12, he talks about a church in which people think of themselves more highly than they ought to. And what happens is the church fails to function as the church. Just that one attitudinal shift away from God and towards self sidelines the church in terms of its capacity for ministry. You see how it works? So here he goes on, this kind of pride that we're concerned of. By the way, the word pride itself is not always a bad word. There's not a problem, with, for example, with, with you being proud of, of, of your accomplishments in a, in a paper or a test that you've done or a work assignment. There's nothing wrong with, with being proud of, 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 of doing those things, right? Or pride in a, in a child who is, has succeeded, Right? I don't think kids should just necessarily get trophies for showing up. But at the same time, if a kid has made some progress in doing some things, I'm walking with somebody right now, for example, whose anxiety disorder has kept him in his apartment for weeks at a time. He just can't come out. It's not, not safe. You know what I mean? And this week, he has, has two or three times on a, on a, on a, in the evening gone out. He's gone bowling. That's pretty cool, because that's a noisy place with scary people and, and big things that can hurt you, right he he's gone to a bar with some friends of his. He, he doesn't drink, but he 's gone to be with people, right? That is huge. So yesterday, what did I say to him? I am so proud of you that's not what Paul's worried about here right I've walked, I've walked, i' walked've walked because I work at the university, I' spent a lot of time with both men and women who have faulty images of themselves. And that tends to lead to toxic relationships, right? So this week I was talking with a, with a young woman who, who over the course, we've been working through this for about nine months, and finally she told me this week when her boyfriend treated her, her poorly, she spoke back to him, and not in a hostile way, but to find the boundaries. I am the beloved daughter of God You will not talk to me nor treat me that way. You go, girl, (laughs) right? I'm proud of you for realizing what is true. You have an accurate view of yourself in Christ. You are precious, beloved, chosen, beautiful. Don't let anybody treat you as if you weren't. We stand in that. We should be proud of ourselves. You see, but that's not what he's concerned about. He's talking about pride that is comparative, that is to say, because I can do x better than you, that makes me better than you. It's the sin of superiority or on the on the negative side, the sin of inferiority, and they're both destructive because. Neither of them agree with what God says is true about you. Right? So we begin with with this awareness of superiority or inferiority that is a comparative analysis. And please notice, as soon as I compare myself to you, what have I just done to the nature of our relationship? I've changed it to a commercial interaction, I've changed it to economics. Instead of real personal relationship, I've damaged you just by doing that. Do you, you see? So we invite ourselves into an awareness. This is, again, it's not that I can't learn from people. It's not that I can't grow from people. It's not that I can't say at one level or another I'm a better singer than another person. That might be objectively true. The question is, do do I, having said that, now begin to believe that because I can sing better or play the guitar better or write better or whatever, that I am therefore a better person than they? That's where pride becomes destructive. That's where, where it turns toxic. That's where it gets perverted and distorted. And that's where we get fragmented and, and torn from, who, from the glory of God that he has in, intended us for. So the result is going to be a damaging of every basic relationship. We find ourselves in constant comparison mode because pride is almost completely expressed in the toxic way here with comparison that leads to a sense of superiority or inferiority. Now, i got to say here, too, uh, especially for us in church, and the reason I'm saying this for me is because this is my big deal, is spiritual pride. It's the most toxic form of pride because it gets wrapped in a cloak of spirituality that allows me to believe myself superior to another uh, in in terms of spirituality. These are the folks that Jesus took on head-on. Jesus didn't get angry very often. Uh, He could choose when and how to be angry, and we'll talk about that uh, in a minute, but uh, I can't do that. However, when Jesus did it, typically it was against those who had become spiritually proud. They were called typically the Pharisees, the people who had put themselves into positions of evaluating and judging and then condemning the other's following of God. Do you see how that works? And because it gets cloaked in the spirituality, and because it gets cloaked for them in a mastery of the text of Scripture, which unfortunately they misused, it's almost unassailable. So while the people admired the Pharisees, they were not impacted by them. They were instead shamed by them. This is what Jesus just freaked everybody out. He eats with sinners. What's up with that? He eats with people like us. Pharisees don't do that. He does that. He fellowships. He invites them in. Why does he do that? And the answer, very simply, is because he loves them. That's how you push back against spiritual pride with love. All right? Um, So uh, the opposite of pride and the best way to cooperate uh, with grace empowered by the Holy Spirit um, is... um, Man, you guys made the clock really small. Okay, there it is. Um, I want to make sure I don't uh, uh, mess up uh, your time today. But um, is to, is to um, uh, become aware uh, and push back and cooperate with the Holy Spirit with cultivated humility. Humility is not self-denial. It's self-acceptance, agreeing with God about what is true about you. Humility then is not putting yourself down. It's not comparing yourself with other people. It's simply embracing the gift God has given you in yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, intellectually. Your whole person embraced as gift and then offered up. The goal of humility is unself consciousness, a non anxious, presence, simply enabled to be in a room and just be. Now, if that sounds attractive to you, the thing that fights against that is pride, right? Because we're constantly managing our image. We walk past a, a, a plate glass window and we want to make sure, am I still looking good? Right? Right? when when we think about what to say in a group we we have the conversation before we have it right we're constantly weighing constantly evaluating constantly judging where we fit into the room that's pride born out of terror because we're not convinced we're loved and father god says i love you can you come out and play Pride can't play. It's afraid of looking silly. It's afraid of looking irresponsible. It's afraid of being ridiculed or made fun of. And Jesus calls us to a non uh, uh, judgmental, non condemning self acceptance that moves forward into unself consciousness and freedom. You see, how, see, see where we're going with this? The next place that, that, that uh, uh, pride... By the way, the, one of the best ways to push back against pride uh, is, is worship, right? Because I'm going to develop a more accurate view of myself the more I enter into a big and accurate picture of God. He will call me out of myself. Thanksgiving is a good way uh, as well. The next one that we want to talk briefly about is uh, is anger and I'm, uh, pride is the big one. So I uh, don't panic. I'm not going to talk about the next two. The same pacing that I have these ones, but ang- and I don't really feel like talking about anger at all, but I have to. So, um, uh, is James chapter one verse twenty is the text that we look at. And if we can uh, leave, uh, flash that up there, uh, James is writing to a church that is being decimated by relational in, uh, disintegrity. All right? And he says this the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And because James is writing as a Jewish theologian, not a Greek theologian, the word righteousness for him is not about moral perfection or moral issues. It has to do with right actions. So the anger of man does not get God's work done. The anger of man, the anger of people, does not accomplish what God is trying to accomplish. We've talked a lot about anger in the Sermon on the Mount. You can go back and um, listen to that on the podcast if you want. So I'm going to just really quickly snapshot this. Uh, Anger roots fundamentally in insecurity and fear. That's why we're angry. Um, And those usually arise because... Uh, they are centered in too much, but okay, you, occasionally, but usually too little love for self combined with an inadequate love for others as the beloved of God. So because I don't really, truly, honestly love myself as God does, heart, soul, mind, and strength, how many of you love yourself the way God loves you? You see? We don't. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We got that one. Love your neighbor as that bridge self in the middle is critical. I have to love myself the way God loves me so that I don't damage my neighbor by loving him poorly or her poorly. You see how that works? So that's what, and, and because I don't, anger roots in my insecurity, in my fear, in my terror, in my frustration, if you say no to me, I get angry. If you cut me off on the freeway, I act as if you were trying to kill me, right? If you've got seventeen items in a 15 item line, yes, I know. in the United States of America, this happens. How do I know that? Because I count. <laughs> right And then I then I just then I, I Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, we're trying to make things happen out of our anger, and it's like, wait, 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 time, time out. Aren't you deeply, truly, passionately loved by the King and the Creator of the universe? Why are you counting things in other people's baskets? Right? Why, 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 why are you then doing it as if they? They did it deliberately to hurt, wound, damage, and destroy you. (laughs) What what are you doing this? Right? And and it roots in that insecurity. It roots in that terror. It roots in that fear that if I don't stand up for myself, nobody's going to. Right? And, And here's the father saying to us, I got your back. You have a heavenly Father who loves you and knows what you need before you even ask. You'll be okay. You can afford to be generous. You can afford to release the guy who cuts you off on the freeway. He's got all kinds of other stuff going on that you don't even want to mess with. Even people who are in your close circle who wound and hurt you, and to whom we are tempted to respond with anger. Instead, we can respond with love. Now, that doesn't mean boundary violations are okay. It just means that when we reinforce the boundary violations, we don't have to do it from a point of weakness, anger. We can do it from a point of strength, love. You feel the difference? And and so the degree to which we have, as we look in the mirror, seen ourselves... Uh, cultivating this sense of injustice so that whenever anybody crosses us, we treat them as... Because anger is a good thing, right? Anger is intended to protect us when we are under threat of imminent death. That's what it's for. And, we, and, and it needs to be used that way. Or when, when Jesus used anger, the second thing Jesus used anger for was to protect the rights of the disenfranchised. The poor, the children, the blind, the people that nobody else paid attention to. Jesus reserved his anger for those who were damaging them. So anger is not a bad thing. It's just a natural reaction to stuff. But what we do with it is when it goes, goes toxic, goes sideways. It either goes internal and shows up in all kinds of things with us, Right? Some of some of the uh, uh, medical findings on this have been phenomenal as people have uh, anger turns to depression, anger turns to eating disorders, anger turns to um, uh, 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 um, heart conditions, high blood pressure. Uh, even some some preliminary research on how some certain forms of cancer uh, have have roots in, in, in that and we're just wanting to say apparently anger is not supposed to be stored up. Sometimes anger goes sideways, right? And, and we're angry at this person, but it comes out this way. A lot of kids get the anger that ought to be reserved for the conversation between mom and dad, right? Uh, and and uh, James is saying here, if you really want to accomplish the righteousness of God, here's, here's the deal. You've got two ears and one mouth. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak. Begin there, because our anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Anger is our way of bigging ourselves up, right? When you're tiny, when you feel shamed, when you feel insignificant and insecure, it's like a cat in a corner that sticks all its hair up on, on its back, right? What's it? It's attempting to become big, so that it won't be taken advantage of. That's what anger is. It's a way of becoming big when we feel small, right? And, and, it, and, it, and it is a, a legitimate way to protect ourselves when we're under imminent threat. But m- most of us are not under imminent threat by 17 items in the basket. We're just not. So why do we react as, we, as if we were? Anger, you'll notice, pushes people away, sets up boundaries and barriers that disable real community. It is Genesis 3 lived out loud. You'll notice that following Genesis 3 is Genesis 4. Am I my brother's keeper was the question at the end of that little story. And the answer from the heavens is, of course you are. So we push back against the cluster of anger First, with worship and thanksgiving, again, a big picture of God reminding us that he knows us and loves us and has got our back, um, and enjoying then the life that he has given us with thanksgiving, all right? The final one that I want to talk briefly about this morning is envy. Proverbs 23, 17 says, don't let your heart envy, and then it says sinners, but I think we could just drop off the sinners because that's everybody. Don't let your heart envy, but rather live in the fear of the Lord always, Right? Don't let your heart envy. Envy takes the comparison we talked about when we were talking about pride and takes it to the extreme. It is a misunderstanding of the love of God that leads to an inadequate love of self and of others. The belief is that blessing is a pie. And if, I, if somebody else gets more, then I get less. That it's a zero-sum game. And envy is built on an understanding of the universe that if you get something, then I can't get something right that that it's that it's there's a just a hundred marbles in the bag, and if you get fifty one that means I only get forty nine That's what envy is rooted in and it, and, it, and you see how fundamentally flawed it is when we have a God who has capacity to create endlessly. And the universe is not a zero-sum game. The universe is built for abundance. The world is built for celebration. And when we limit the universe to a zero-sum game, who is diminished? Us and everybody in our world. Because our relationships get shapen and misshapen. Envy leads to a chronic and spreading discontentment and dissatisfaction. We both, and, and, it, and it leads to this toxic comparison with other people. It's not just that we want what they have and are jealous and envious of them for having it, it's that really at the end of the day, we don't want them to have it. So envy pushes us away, and this is where it really goes sad. We kind of, we kind of, we don't do it publicly, although sometimes we do, frankly. At least I do. We don't often publicly rejoice when somebody fails and falls. But that's what envy does internally. Well, they got what's coming to them. Right? And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in bad things happening to people, it just doesn't. You see the pushback? So it leads to a discredit chronic dissatisfaction, Genesis 3 comes to life, fear and shame pushes us away from real relationship because we think everybody's doing the comparison thing, right? Uh, and, and we do it physically, we do it emotionally, we do it spiritually, we do it in all these kinds of ways. Um, we we surf, It surfaces in displeasure at another's success and pleasure at their failing. The problem with envy is that we we will discover later when when it comes to greed, is that we'll never be content. Even if nobody has anything and we have everything, we still won't be happy because at the center, we don't believe what is true about us. So we push back against envy with thanksgiving, with worship, with a deliberate celebration from our heart at the success of other people when somebody else gets a promotion that you thought you were up for Envy is going to rob them of their joy. It will, yes, but their joy. Don't do that. Let yourself honestly rejoice in the good things that happen to other people, knowing that you have a heavenly Father who has more good things that are available for you too. Do you see how it works? So this morning, um, we're going to take some time uh, just in, in this Lenten season, and I don't know if we'll do this every week, uh, but uh, I, I would like to just um, give you some space here uh, this morning. If you, want to, uh, if you want to find yourself at one of the crosses that's here in, uh, in the back or in the prayer thing, if you want to just gather around some of the tables that are there or pull some of the chairs into a smaller circle, I'm going to ask you just to, to invite the Holy Spirit to kind of search your heart. Lord, is, are these things present in me? How are they present in me? Where does pride show up? Where does anger drive my relationship? Where, maybe even this week, have I been upset because somebody got something that I wanted, believing that because they got it, there's nothing left for me? Right? We're going to be scrolling the words of a, of a psalm of confession. It's David's psalm, Psalm 51. And uh, if you want to use those words to pray your heart as you invite the Spirit to search you, you can feel free to do that. Uh, Brian and the team are going to come back, and they're just going to kind of pray, play over but not invite us in yet to this, uh, to this uh, uh, a co- co- corporate prayer. But if, if you can take some time and just let the Lord search your heart. I know that we don't do this often. Uh, and, and 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 I know it's difficult, but if you even wanted to, to pull some chairs aside and turn around and just kneel, for a few minutes and let turn that place that you're sitting into a sanctuary. If you're a guest or visitor with us, this is the first time you've ever been to the garden. Yeah, it, it, don't panic; it's okay. Uh, we're not going to hold anybody uh, a prisoner. If you feel uncomfortable and you want to head out, God bless you. Thanks for coming this morning. Uh, but if you're willing to say, Lord where am I going sideways on this? And let the Holy Spirit of God search your heart. Uh, And then, as you become aware, I want you to find a place, find a way. Maybe you want to come and bring it to the cross in communion uh, at the back. Uh, Or maybe you just want to, to, uh, to write a note to God, I hereby sign over the rights of this discontentment to you and give it over. Whatever you need to do, don't leave here with what the Spirit has revealed you came here with, right? Don't look in the mirror and forget what you look like, okay? Let's pray, and then let's go into some stillness and just invite the Spirit of God to search our hearts. Lord, uh, th- this, is, this is not uh, about shame or c- condemnation. Or, or, or It is, however, about invitation. And so as we sit here with this stillness, Um, and invite you to search our hearts. Lord, where are the ways of sin? Where are the ways of pain? Where are the ways of toxicity in us? Where, oh Lord, have we damaged relationships by comparison that led to an inferiority or a superiority? Lord, where have we damaged relationships with anger that is really born out of our fear and insecurity? Lord, where have we gotten sideways with somebody because... They got something we wanted, and we were jealous because they got it. Um, Lord, please, we want to bring all of this to you and invite you to search our hearts to see if there be any harmful way in us. And then, O oh Lord, I pray for courage to bring them to Jesus, to connect them with your, you on that cross, O oh Lord, uh, so that when Easter comes, we can enter that celebration free. We do it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from the Garden, or would like to find out more about the Garden Church, please visit us on the web at thegardenlb.org. Our hearts are